You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. You know, the book of Colossians will, from time to time, actually make you scratch your head. In this one little letter, Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Talked about that last week. He talks about the circumcision of Christ. He refers to strange worship practices. Later in the letter, you'll read about the worship of angels or asceticism, uh, severely beating the bo- your, your body physically for the sake of, of righteousness. Matter of fact, in chapter four, he even mentions an unknown epistle that was written to the church at Laodicea. These are just a few of the tricky passages that we, we, we get to wrestle with together in this series, but by far, one of the most difficult verses in the book is right here in verse 24. Thank you, Pastor Rodney. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Scholars have said this can be one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible to understand. Matter of fact, entire books have been written on this very verse. I mean, what could possibly be lacking in Christ's affliction? And in any case, how on earth could Paul fill them up? These questions and so many more need to be answered and hopefully will this morning, but I don't think we can actually start here. To to get a better grasp on the text, I think it'll actually help us this morning to work backwards within the passage. I wanna build a case this morning that will actually culminate here together. I can't think of any other place to begin than with the beautiful mystery that Paul refers to over and over. In verse 26, The mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now it's been revealed. The mystery that in verse 27 is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is nothing else in this earth or outside of it for that matter that could possibly bring you that kind of hope, the hope of glory. So here's the first assertion in my case this morning. Jesus is most precious. How precious? Well, Jesus is the mystery in chapter 2, verse 3, that retains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This mystery is especially beautiful because in verse 26 it says, it was hidden for ages and generations. This passage is wrought with the intricacies of just how precious he is. In chapter 2, verse 2, if we begin there and kind of work our way backwards in the text this morning, we see that he is the knowledge of God's mystery. He's precious. He is the riches of full assurance. He is the most precious. He is our understanding Paul says to the Philippians that his peace actually transcends understanding. Again, in verse 3, in him are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Matter of fact, he's so precious that Paul is careful to instruct the church in chapter 2, verse 4, that he doesn't want them persuaded by any other argument. I say this in order that no one may delude you with a plausible argument. You know, a plausible argument might be this, that Jesus is precious. Jesus is precious, not the most precious. But Paul is clear in the book of Colossians that in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So in him is the fullness of joy. Don't be persuaded by another argument that Jesus plus anything else would bring you fullness of joy because he is the most precious. And this truth isn't just seen here in this passage. Matter of fact, it's echoed throughout the book of Colossians. In chapter three, verse four, says that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ doesn't just give life, he is life. This truth is also consistent with the rest of the New Testament. John chapter 14 says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. And he's so precious that he's the only way to God. James chapter 1 says he's so precious that every good and perfect gift comes from him. The truth that Jesus is most precious reverberates beyond the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament. The psalmist declares in chapter 145, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare of your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. He's the most precious. Scripture affirms this. And I think in the lives of many that God privileges us to interact with, we see that Jesus is the most precious. Last week, we had the privilege of meeting my friend Sam. And you got to hear Sam's testimony right here on this stage, how just less than two weeks ago, Christ rescued him from his sin. I mean, he, he was a living embodiment of Colossians 3 that he had put off the old practices and it put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We got to witness his testimony of how precious Christ was to him. And then we got to witness his baptism, a symbol, a declaration to the world of how precious Jesus was to Sam. Last night, I had the joy of officiating Sam and Gabby's wedding. Friday night, after the rehearsal dinner, Sam walked me to my car, and we stopped to talk for a brief moment, 
And at the mention of Jesus, Sam began to weep. You want to know how I know Jesus is precious to Sam? Because when he thinks about who Jesus is and what he's done, he can't help but let it affect every part of his being. And thinking through the lineup of his friends that night, Sam began to cry. Because the man that he had chosen lived the life of the old self with him. And he was sad for all of them because he wants them to know Jesus like he does. When speaking of his groomsmen, Sam told me on Friday, I wish I would have chosen better friends for this moment. You see, here's the thing. Jesus is so precious to him that he affects his friendships. Jesus is so precious to Sam that he affects his marriage. That he refused to step forward into the union created by Christ until he declared to the world how precious Christ was to him through baptism. He was so precious to him that he drove from Oklahoma at dawn last Sunday to get here to tell of God's goodness and how precious he actually is. And I think all of us need to take a hard look at our life this morning and ask this question. Is Jesus most precious to you? Jesus was so precious to some people at Stonegate that they left the comfort of this family to help start a new church in Cedar Hill with Valentine at Omni Fellowship, with Brad and Arlington at Restore Church, with Derek and Burleson at Trailview Church, with Casey Maddox in Kansas City at Free City Church. Jesus was so precious that they forsook themselves for the sake of the kingdom. Many changing jobs or moving across cities or the country for the sake of how precious he actually is. Jesus was so precious to a couple in our church this week that they gifted a bigger car to somebody in our church with a growing family. Jesus is so precious to some of you that you're willing to give scholarships to send kids to camp, to sow seeds in the next generation of disciples, to see a generation rise up unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is so precious to some people in this church that they are willing to say yes to the hard that is foster care and adoption. Jesus was precious enough to Pastor Rodney in November of 2016 to look at me across the table at a taco casa of all places. <laughs> like when I relive that moment, I think like we could have done such, so much better than that subpar Mexican food. But he was so precious to Rodney for him to look at me across the table with tears in his eyes and say, your ministry is more important than your marriage. Is Jesus precious enough to you to speak the truth in love to someone else? If Jesus is the box to check off just by being here this morning, then he's not the most precious thing to you. I think John Piper puts it wonderfully. He actually says the critical question for this generation and every generation for that matter is this. 
he asks the following question. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, minus Taco Casa, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted. No human conflict, no natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And Stonegate, if your answer to that question is anything other than an unequivocal no, then Jesus is not the most precious thing to you. May he be ever so precious to us as the words of the old Irish prayer from the 11th century made popular by St. Patrick 600 years later when it was inscribed on his breastplate. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me. Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Stonegate, Jesus is most precious And now Paul is telling us through the book of Colossians that not only is he most precious, but you are also a steward of what's most precious. In chapter 1, verse 26, it says that the mystery was revealed to the saints. If God's revealed it, then you're a steward. If he's revealed it, it wasn't meant to keep silent Reminds me of Paul and Silas in Acts when they're broken out of jail. And they're encouraged to, to kind of keep it safe and hide out for a while and lay low. And their response is so beautiful. I cannot hide the things I have seen and heard. If God's word goes forth and his work is made known, then they're meant to advance his kingdom. Look at the descriptive language in verse 25. The stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To receive something on behalf of someone else makes you a steward. Justin Timberlake, famous theologian, <laughs> hosted the ESPY Awards a number of years ago. And um, Tiger Woods won Best Male Athlete of the Year. However, Tiger wasn't able to attend the ceremony. So they thought, which athlete could possibly best represent him in his place? None other than Will Ferrell. <laughs> who not only received the trophy on his behalf, but gave a very memorable speech on behalf of Tiger that year. And if for some reason you don't know who two out of those three people are, just ask a millennial. So how do you know you're a steward? I mean, how, how do we know that? It says, it's, it's given to me for you, but like, is, there's other evidences within the text that show us what this looks like. Chapter one, verse 29. 
Paul declares, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. To toil is to work extremely hard or incessantly. In other words, stewarding is hard work. It's simple, but it's not easy. Reminds me of a friend that gave me an analogy one time about this. He said, it's like giving you a shovel. And if I were to give you a shovel and said, I have a task for you at hand. That task is to take that shovel, the tool you've been given, and go dig a ditch. 10 feet deep, 10 feet wide. That's it. It's pretty simple. You just start digging. You need to start throwing some dirt. But if I were to add a caveat and said, I need you to do it in a beekeeping suit with a throw coat in the heat of the Texas July. Well, the task is simple in nature, but it's not easy. It just got that much more difficult. That's why Paul likens stewarding to a struggle. Stewarding is a lot like struggling. Look at chapter two, verse one. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. A variation of the word toil is actually used more than 15 times in the New Testament, 11 of which are used by Paul himself. The first word of encouragement from Jesus to the churches in Revelation went to Ephesus. Jesus praised them for their toil. So who do you steward it for? I mean, who are we stewarding this for? Even those you haven't met yet? Chapter 2, verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The struggle I have for you, for those in Laodicea. And he says, for all who have not seen me face to face. The struggle is even for those who have not seen you. How can that be? Because your stewardship is not just for the little C church, Stonegate. It's also for the big C church, Universal. Chapter 1, verse 27. It's revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known to the world that revealed mystery. That which is most precious which is Christ. Your stewardship is for the church. We see this more clearly at the end of verse 24. He says the stewardship is for the sake of the body. That is the church. Paul wants that which is most precious to be rooted in the heart of the church. Stonegate, he wants the most precious to become real to you. So how do you do that? I mean, how, how do we steward that? How does that play out in our lives? If Christ is most precious, and you were to steward that which is most precious, then how do you steward him? The answer is twofold. We see this in the passage. First, you steward what's most precious by speaking. You speak it 
You proclaim it. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. It's a declaration to the world that the mystery has been revealed. So how do we proclaim it? He says, warning everyone, teaching everyone. This is how you speak it. In verse 25, Paul says that he stewards what God gave him by doing what? Making the word of God known. In Philippians, he goes as far as to say, it doesn't matter if you do it from false motives or true. As long as Christ is preached, I will rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Sure, the gospel is preached from this stage. It's proclaimed in your home group week to week. But what about your sphere of influence? There's a reason our church is rallying this year around one simple question. Three simple words. Who's your one? Because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Newsflash. Lost people need Jesus. And God wants you to speak the good news of Jesus into their life. And the book of Romans is clear in chapter 10. People can't hear if no one preaches. Your words matter. Listen to the words of famed magician and atheist, Penn Gillette, from the magician duo Penn and Teller, who once said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make socially awkward moments, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is absolutely possible and not actually tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is even more important than that. Stonegate, we are to steward what's most precious by preaching and proclaiming the mystery revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you steward what's most precious by speaking. And you steward what's most precious by suffering. You steward what's most precious by speaking and suffering. In other words, you steward in word and indeed. So here we go. Verse 24, our case culminates here this morning together. But notice the odd language surrounding Paul's exhortation around suffering. Paul explicitly says he rejoiced in his sufferings. Can we be real for a moment? Like from a secularist perspective, this is incomprehensible. But the Bible does not deviate from this pattern. It echoes this truth over and over and over. Romans chapter five, verse three, speaks of rejoicing in your suffering. 
First Peter chapter four, verse 13, a letter written to those suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire says to suffer and rejoice. Acts chapter five, verse 41, tells of the apostles rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Why? Why were they counted worthy to suffer? Because Paul's sufferings aren't an obstacle for his ministry. They're a tool. It's because Jesus is so precious. It's because Jesus is the most precious that he can rejoice in the suffering. This is why Paul tells the church at Philippians in chapter one, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you not only believe in him, but it has been granted to you that you should suffer for his sake. Suffering brings good to the church. Look at the end of verse 24 with me. The suffering is for the sake of the body, the church. And without Paul's willingness to suffer, there would have been no church in Asia. Now the church in Asia is the fastest growing church in the world. And to better understand Paul's suffering, let me bring some clarity to what he's referencing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists the catalog of miseries that he's endured just to get the gospel to Asia. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Those who might want to delude with plausible arguments. And toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Stonegate, the church benefits in the sufferings of others. And for Paul, this is cause for rejoicing. This is why very often, the suffering of a brother or sister in Christ is the source of great blessing to the church. Paul is clear. Suffering is for the sake of his body. Notice, he's not highlighting personal benefits but the communal benefits. Which begs the question, are you suffering in community? If not, I, I wanna plead with you today to commit to a home group because your suffering makes Jesus real to others around you. When you suffer for Jesus' sake, it's always for the sake of others. That's what's going on here. That's why it's so interesting that Paul describes the effect of his suffering in a way that has actually brought confusion to so many. 
filling up my flesh in regards to Christ's afflictions? This is one of the most debated verses in all of Scripture. I mean, how can we add to the sufferings of Christ? Well, here's the short answer. You can't. I mean, here's what we know is not true about this passage. It does not mean that Paul made up for what was lacking in the atoning sufferings of Christ. We know it's true because the entire book of Colossians, the breadth of Paul's letters, and the consistency of the New Testament teach the sufficiency of Christ in his atonement for our sins. We'll see this next week in chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Look back at chapter 1. Two weeks ago, in the first opening message of this series, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's be clear. Jesus didn't lack a thing in regards to the completion of his work on that cross. His solo work was sufficient to deliver you from your sins. Jesus didn't need Paul to step in where he couldn't, as if Jesus needed Paul to finish anything for him, at least not in a salvific way. So one thing is clear about what the text is not saying. We add nothing to the saving work of Christ. He did it all on his own. But experientially, One thing this text does teach is that there is a close identification between Christ and the church through suffering. If you want to sit with Jesus, then suffer with others. Before Paul's Damascus Road encounter, Paul had been making Christ suffer in the people he was persecuting. But Christ's first words to Saul made this clear in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Persecuting Jesus. Saul was persecuting the followers of Jesus. But we see the connection of how Jesus was being persecuted through the bodies of his followers. However, immediately after Paul's conversion, Jesus says what? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul would suffer, and Christ would suffer in him. Wow, that is a glorious truth. Here's the thing. God's going to use your suffering to make Christ real to people. And one of the people that I see this beautifully reflected in is my dear friend Kevin Hill, who's been like a dad to me, a shepherd to my own heart. Kevin has served on staff at Stonegate for almost seven years. He sees the sufferings of Jesus in this life as a gift. Kevin has a special needs son. His name is Grant. Grant is obsessed with Captain America. This is Grant's diagnosis. 
He has severe autism. Grant is 24 years old, but he operates at about a three-year-old level developmentally. He has cerebral palsy. His fine motor skills are so affected that he can't walk on his own. Grant can't speak. So Kevin's never heard the words, I love you, from his son. Grant has cortical blindness. So his depth perception is so greatly affected that he can't see anything around him. Grant has epilepsy. He has seizures every night, usually about two to three every night for the last 24 years. And Kevin and his sweet wife, Elizabeth, have to get up and check on Grant every night to make sure he's okay and breathing. Grant requires 24-7 care around the clock. Grant needs full assistance to be fed, to be clothed, to be bathed. And through all of it, Here's the response I've seen in a man that I'm privileged to call a second dad in my life. Kevin says, Grant's the sweetest person I've ever met. He's the toughest person I've ever met. He's an absolute joy to spend my life with. Notice the theme of rejoicing in suffering. He's changed me in so many ways that I can't even fathom. If I had to do it all over again, I'd say yes in a heartbeat. This relationship for Kevin has been one of God's sweetest reminders in his life of how his sufferings draw him deeper into the union with Jesus. even when you can't see it. Suffering does for others what the best sermon can't do. My wife Sarah lost her mom to brain cancer at the age of 12. The suffering of Jesus can sustain a motherless child. Her suffering matters. When I think about Corey Tim Boom, only the sufferings of Christ can make a Nazi concentration camp survivable. Her suffering matters. I'll never forget the first time in ministry when my abstract view of suffering became more concrete. I was called away from my family that late night on Christmas Eve to the emergency room. (laughs) Because a car went off the road and ran over a student. staring into the eyes of a helpless father. 
I saw a man desperately trying to figure out how to move on after his son's funeral. Sufferings of Jesus are so deep, they can sustain a person through the loss of their own child. This is happening to a family in our church right now. If you want to curl up into the lap of Jesus, just crawl down into the hole of suffering with somebody else. One time I arrived to the home of a student whose father just pointed a gun to his own head and pulled the trigger. Jesus became more real to that boy and his mom than ever before. Their suffering matters. There's couples here at Stonegate who are currently struggling to get pregnant. Some dear friends of mine. It's the sufferings of Jesus that can sustain a barren womb. Their suffering matters. October 18th, 2019, was my youngest daughter's birthday. Her name is Stella. She is... She is too much like me. It's scary. So I did what any dad would do who cares about the health of his child. I got her donuts. <laughs> this was from the morning of her birthday. Later that night, her sister, Lainey, missed out because of school that day, so she wanted to join in the celebration. So I redeemed my health moment by getting them both ice cream that night. <laughs> they were so elated that day because the next day was gonna be their joint birthday party. Since their birthdays are only five days apart, we always celebrate the two of them together. This year was gonna be special. It was at the Shadow Creek Pumpkin Farm. Late that night, we had a family emergency, and Sarah miscarried our child. We were discharged at dawn the morning of my daughter's birthday party. Sarah couldn't even go. It was as if her flesh was splitting in two and I had to go alone and relive it over and over. Every time somebody asked me where Sarah was, it felt like my heart was being ripped out of my chest. But that season of suffering has brought us so much deeper into the union with Christ. Your sufferings aren't some chasm between you and God. Your sufferings are a catalyst to get closer to him.
about 30 minutes before, about five minutes before I walked on stage, the first hour, I got word that somebody in our church just lost their best friend. It just makes you wonder all around you, brothers and sisters who are enduring suffering. And I just want to look at you this morning and say, your suffering matters. And it makes Jesus look so real. Stonegate, Jesus is most precious. We've been made a steward of that which is most precious. And we steward it by speaking the gospel and suffering with others. Would you take a moment to pray with me? I just want to give you a moment. to focus your heart and fixate your mind on the person of Christ. The Messiah who knew no sin, but became sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Father, I thank you that because of your sufferings, we can rejoice. Because when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. We can rejoice because the mystery has been revealed and we now can not just cling to, but see the mystery revealed alive inside of us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thank you that we can rejoice because your suffering work was accomplished once and for all on the cross. And Lord, thank you for our suffering, which makes you so real to us. And I just pray. I pray the gift over this church body this week, God, that we would get to sit with Jesus by suffering with others around us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.